welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president and professor of Old Testament here. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, uh, our instructor in New Testament and senior pastor at New City Presbyterian Church, as well as Dr. Grace Sutanto, our professor of systematic theology and our man in Jakarta. But we pray, and you can pray with us, that that will not be much longer. And we have a special treat today. Uh, we have Dr. Michael Allen, the John Dyer Trimble Professor of Systematic Theology and the Academic Dean at RTS Orlando, a good friend, um, a prolific scholar, particularly in the area of systematic theology and retrieval and all kinds of other things that we're going to talk about today. So, Mike, it's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me back, guys. Yeah, that's right. This is your second time. You, you're are you the first repeat guest that we've had? I'm looking around, folks. I, am I the first glutton for punishment? You're the, you might be. You might be. So I'm not sure if that speaks to your wisdom or to your youth and inexperience, but we'll go with it. <laughs> so what we're actually going to talk about today is something that you're in charge of and are a big part of, which is, I think, actually probably one of the best things that RTS has come up with as a new program uh, for the la- over the last few years, and this is the Paideia Center of Theological Discipleship. This is a group of regional reading groups, and it kind of culminates in a conference, an annual conference that I've had the privilege of attending in the past, um, but it's really dealing with classic theological texts from the Christian tradition, trying to get people back up to speed and re- re-encountering the Christian tradition. Mike, can you tell us a little bit about the, the origin story behind the Paideia Center? Yeah, it's an effort for us to help provide some non-formal training to folks who uh, perhaps went to seminary long ago or perhaps have no aspirations of ever going to seminary, but want either continuing or further theological training. And and really the, the impetus was just an observation that sadly in our wider cultural conversations and even more tragically often in, in Christian conversations, we have a a thinness and an inability to really assess what's new and to converse about things in a substantive and productive way. And uh, I think of the words of Ephesians 4.13, the idea of those who are immature and who are tossed to and fro because they're not a community capable of discernment and of serious discussion and deliberation. And so Paideia is an effort to draw on the resources of the past and to do so together in a communal project. And so we read classics so that we might stand on the shoulders of those who've gone before us and see further into scripture. Uh, And we gather, whether it's in a reading group or in a larger conference to discuss seriously. And hopefully what we found in, in there being dozens of groups around the world and hundreds who've participated now over several years uh, is that folks are more confident that they can engage serious questions uh, equipped with the resources of the past, not coming to them alone as if we got to reinvent the wheel, um, and also that they're, they're shaped to have better, more productive conversations, not to yell at each other, but also not simply to drink the Kool-Aid and to avoid serious critical discussion. And hopefully in our different spaces and various projects, Paideia is really equipping 
a bunch of pastors and laypersons and academics to engage in those practices together. I remember one of the early series, maybe I'm not sure if it was the first or first or the second, maybe it was Gregory of Nazianzus. We did the orations and I got to lead the Paideia group up here in DC on that and had read the orations back in my seminary days, but hadn't gone back to it. And now kind of post academic scholarship and years in seminary, going back and just the, the richness. And like you said, you, you're getting rooted in what has been said before and how the spirit has been revealing scripture to the, to thinkers and communities in the past and being reminded how we are at the latest stage of this wonderful tradition that we have to draw from and that church history didn't just begin last week. Yes, yeah, Scott, I, I love what you said just now because um, there's something about reading these works as like a, a first year seminary student about 15, 20 years ago. And then after years of intensive study and even seminary teaching, uh, coming back and reading them my experience has been like, <laughs> oh, they were right all along, but you um, are able to approach it with this appreciation, like there's a depth to it, you know, that right now, like when I see my kids eat like occasionally like a really nice steak, they just think it's another piece of meat, but <laughs> years later, you know, they come back and they're like, wow, this is amazing. I, there's something about that that's so worth it. That's why I think the Paideia program is great. Yeah, and it's something that can be a, a helpful challenge and conversation point. We have groups around the world, Jakarta, Brazil, various groups around Europe, as well as a host of cities here in North America. And, and what we find is that by reading folks, whether it's the, the fourth century or the 16th century, all of us are reading somebody from a, a different culture, whether it's geographically different from every group or not. And in each case, it's, it's a voice heralding us to think more carefully about scripture and to think more faithfully about our practice. And uh, we don't wind up agreeing with everything they say, and we certainly don't wind up agreeing with each other on every point. One of the benefits is uh, learning to charitably and critically engage each other in ways that are mutually productive. But we find that, that, that really in that challenge and that provocation, comes a great encouragement that there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and even mm. amongst very differences, there is something uh, that, that we could call the rule of faith and the rule of love. Uh, and also that there, there really are different challenges that pop up in different times, but they can be equipped and better faced by listening to those from other places and times. And uh, I, I continue to find that personally encouraging as I lead a group here, but also as I hear from leaders uh, such as yourself or Gray or others, the kind of discussions that are going on in different localities. Can you unpack, it's an important idea, can you unpack this a little bit more, the idea of the rule of faith or the regula fida? Can uh, Just for our listeners um, who may not be familiar with that language, because I think it's just a really important idea for what you guys are doing. Sure. Yeah. So in scripture, there are different moments where uh, apostles or prophets point to the idea already there, sort of nascent in the first century, that there's an understanding that scripture is a large and complex reality, and it needs to be understood in certain ways rather than others. And so you'll have Paul referring in his writing to Timothy of a good deposit or you'll have Paul referring to a faith once for all delivered to the saints. 
Uh, and that'll go back to Old Testament prophetic language where uh, the Pentateuch or God's works are summed up in certain ways, uh, drawn from texts like Exodus 3 or 34 uh, or the confession of Deuteronomy. Um, but what we, what we find is that there's what early theologians like Irenaeus of Lyon in the second century would call the, the regula fide or rule of faith. And what Augustine would add to it, the rule of love, that scripture speaks in a coherent way and it's got central and peripheral elements, and it's crucial to understand the periphery in light of the central realities. Uh, things like what finds its way into the creed, things like what finds its way into Jesus' teaching in the model prayer of, of Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, things like what finds its way into the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, whether in Exodus 20 or, or Deuteronomy 5. Um, that those are guides to what we ought to believe, a rule for our faith, but also to how we ought to live as Christian women and men, uh, how we pray, how we love God and neighbor, uh, the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. And those are tools that Christians through the ages have used to disciple one another, to sort of provide as guideposts a rule or canon, a rubric by which they know how to make sense of what's a, a good reading of Scripture and a, a, a good witness as a Christian, whether it's our belief and trust in God and the gospel or our practice, our love to God and neighbor. That's fantastic. And I think we really see the sort of perennial value of reading this classical theological text because they really do reflect on the major teachings of the Christian faith. And even as I had led groups in Jakarta and then now in DC, even though these are two completely different contexts, these texts continue to be relevant in these different contexts. And they're not going after just kind of enclaved and minority sort of teachings, but they're actually covering all these major areas within the Christian faith and life. And so right now we're turning, particularly in this year, to another classical Christian text, which is Augustine City of God. All the cl uh, classical texts that we've read so far, I mean, again, they're all perennial. They're all very relevant. They're all uh, talking about these major theological topics, summarizing the Bible and so on. But Augustine City of God, it's not just, I think, a, a canonical text within the Christian tradition, but it's particularly relevant for our times today, perhaps. And I wonder if you would speak into that particularly, because Augustine is talking about a public theology, a political theology. Uh, what do you say about that? Yeah, I've, I've described it in our various advertisements as a year for taking to a political palate cleanser, uh, whether somebody's in North America or you know, in Europe or in Asia, wherever you might find yourself, it's definitely been a year of public debate and rancor. Uh, and so often it's been a year of sort of thin public discourse, a lot of shouting. And uh, you know, we might say a lot of heat, little light. And uh, again, sadly, some Christians have done well, but many Christians have, have not added to sort of the wisdom on offer, they have they've oftentimes simply repeated the rather immature partisan rancor of others. And so we really wanted to take a deep dive into what's, by all accounts, the most significant text on public life or on society. And it's a text that, like our own times, is dealing with a massive crisis and a, a sense that public life is perhaps at the breaking point and uh, a desire to examine what's behind that and what, if anything, might be done to address it. And so 
Augustine City of God was a, a really natural reference point as we think about life this side of a pandemic season, of some vitriolic political discussions, particularly in North America and Europe, as we think about all sorts of, of different uh, public changes taking place really in different ways around the globe. And Christians need to be able to address that with wisdom, with patience, with care, with forbearance, uh, and with something that's more than just strategic thought, with real substantive theological insight that's rooted in scripture. And Augustine's text models all that. It also does it, if we're honest, at great length and in a somewhat intimidating manner. So it's a book that unless you are impelled to read it for a college or seminary class, you're likely not going to take it up because it will intimidate you. And so a Paideia reading group provides the kind of encouragement, accountability, and guidance where a lot of women and men who might think, I probably should read that, but I never could read that. Hopefully they gain the competence and the confidence that they can really take it up and think with it. And that's why we're spending the whole year in this particular text. We're doing the first 10 books in the fall semester and then the second 10 books in the spring semester. And you're right, it's a very intimidating book. So Mike, given the kind of bigness of this book and, and the, the overall sort of uh, grand narrative that Augustine is weaving in this text, how would you summarize the main argument or structure of the text? In brief. Yeah, so it's probably helpful to, to sort of step back two steps and see what provokes it. So Augustine has been bishop in a North African city known as Hippo for over a decade at this point. And in August of 410, Goths, not, not the, the punk Goths of the, the 80s and 90s, but uh, Goths from the north, barbarians, have invaded uh, the city of Rome, and for three days in late August of 410, they have sieged it. And uh, this is a momentary and rather small targeted attack. Even in Rome, the average person might not have actually encountered any of these invaders. Some, though, were raped, pillaged, and killed. So, I mean, it was serious. But what was even more serious was the way in which this shaped the self-conception of Rome. Romans believed that this was the glorious city that had undergone roughly a thousand year period of peace. And uh, I would liken it to the American experience of 9-11. Most Americans don't live in Washington, D.C. or New York City uh, or in a, a field in Pennsylvania. Most weren't literally where the attacks were. But uh, an attack that killed a small percentage of Americans shaped all of our perception about our sense of peace and invulnerability. And it really punctured a kind of confidence that marked uh, all in America to some extent. And that's what Rome was dealing with coming out of this invasion in 410. And uh, many started to blame Christians because Christians had especially been in power and been using that power in the last 20 or 30 years. It had been a century since Constantine had brought Christianity somewhat into the mainstream, but it was especially in the, the reign of Theodosius toward the end of the fourth century that Christianity really became central and paganism began to be restricted in various ways. And some were speaking of a tempora Christiana, a Christian era or time, and suddenly Rome gets attacked 
and they lose. And so critics suggest Christians are to blame. You turned away from the pagan gods, you changed Rome's nature, and now we are losing. You are to blame, your God is to blame. And so Augustine wants to respond. He's asked to respond by a guy named Marcellinus, a friend who writes to him. And, uh, you know, sometimes you get a, a text normally from a, an, someone from an older generation, and they respond with a much fuller reply than you immediately ask for. I'll often text my father, you know, for a quick one word answer, and he'll send me a tome of three paragraphs in text form. And that's what Augustine's doing. He is giving Marcellinus the mother of all answers here, uh, roughly 800 pages, where he first really challenges those critics of Christianity and, and books one to 10 that we're studying this fall. They're an engagement of Greek and Roman sources. He's hardly at all going to scripture. He's not arguing on Christian grounds uh, explicitly, but he's trying to say, okay, let's Let's take those criticisms at face value. Let's see if they hold muster on your own grounds of belief and based on your own sources. And he tries to show that actually Rome wasn't all that awesome to start with. He points out that Roman gods and emperors haven't been that helpful to the body politic. And then he goes further and he, he really shows that not only has Christianity not been the reason for these problems, but he tries to demonstrate on secular grounds that Christianity itself has, you might say, leavened the body politic. It is provided for virtuous citizens and emperors and uh, benefited Rome. And then as we'll get to in the second semester, books 11 to 22, he now offers a, a scriptural account of what's going on, uh, starting with Genesis and creation from nothing and running all the way to heaven and hell in books 21 and 22, where he tells the history of what he calls two cities who are defined by two loves, the city of God defined by the love of God to the contempt of self, the city of man uh, defined by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And he shows the interplay and the enmity between those two cities that runs from the fall all the way to the finale. And uh, that involves careful exegesis of some passages, especially for instance, Genesis and its primeval history in Genesis 1 to 11. It also involves just lengthy narrative accounts of portions of scripture that often get jumped over, especially uh, segments of the Old Testament that many hop, skip, and jump past. And Augustine will, will provide very lengthy and insightful readings of them also. And he'll, he'll read in Babylonian and Roman history in the light of those, those scriptural lenses. So it's a massive project. It really is this twofold project where he's trying to assess criticism on its own terms and to be a good and productive interlocutor, but also where he doesn't want to allow the pagans to set the terms for debate. So he wants to provide a distinctly Christian scriptural set of lenses for us to, to understand what's going on in distinctly Christian ways. So the it's it's interesting you just you laid that out as this kind of grand narrative of the city of God and the city of man. This is not merely Rome and the church, right? This is about a much larger story. How how would you describe those two different cities? He does in that famous passage. He talks about these being one. You know, the city of man is is involved in the love of self, like you said, to the contempt of God. 
and the city of God, of the love of God and glorifying God, and that each city has its wise men and each city has its, its officers. Okay, how would you describe uh, to someone who's coming to this anew who might think, oh, he's just talking about the church versus everything else or something like that? How do we think about these two cities? What, what, how, do we, yeah. how do we understand them in terms of classifications? Well, you know, Augustine throughout the, the work reflects on ways that others have tried to make sense of social life. And so you can read folks like Cicero and others, and there are different accounts of what makes for a city, a good or bad one. It could be that, for instance, peace, however defined, is the marker of, of a civic life. Um, of course, defining peace becomes remarkably divisive at that point. Uh, some might then go to justice. And really, it's about not just a peace, but a just peace. And uh, again, however, Augustine argues justice is something that itself is not without debate and definition. I think we can acknowledge that in our own day. Who's against justice in one sense, right? But we define it in varied ways. Um, and so Augustine really presses into the idea that ultimately love is going to define things. And the way in which we love and the order with which we love realities is going to shape the kind of individual or social life that we exercise. And he's going to explore the social life here. If we order our love of neighbor and even of self as subordinate to and subservient to our love of God, then we're going to lead a life where our power and our resources are ultimately not ours. They bless us, but they are for a greater purpose than us. They're for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. On the other hand, Augustine identifies since the, the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, this pathology, and it appears at the bottom of page one of the city of God, and it, it is narrated throughout, first in Greek and Roman form and then in scriptural accounts. But he, he describes this moral psychological problem of what he names the libido dominandi, the desire to dominate or the lust to rule. And as he unpacks the idea, he unpacks the, the idea that we all want to have control, whether of ourselves or our children or our environment or even of others. And to the extent that our desire to be in control is superordinate rather than subordinate, to our desire to honor God, we will, we will use others. We will objectify others. We will even sacrifice others. We will disadvantage others to the advantage of ourselves. And he sees this in stories of the Old Testament. You can think of patriarchal narratives, for instance, uh, in Genesis and tales from the entirety of the canon. Um, he sees this in Greek and Roman and Babylonian tales. Uh, he sees this in his own day, and, and he argues that that's the psychology of the city of man, this idea where there is love, but it's a disordered love, where God is not viewed as God, but where we attempt to play God by having control. And the real tragic reality is if we long to have control, like Rome, who had more control than anyone, uh, we will find that there's always more control to be had. There's always another war to be fought. There's always another person to be subjugated. There's always another situation, another risk to somehow be managed. 
uh, we will find that it actually dominates us and leaves us without either justice or peace. And he argues that's the, that's the tragic, you might say poetic justice of that lust to dominate, that it, it goes parasitic. Um, and I, I think that's a remarkably powerful image that he's drawing from scripture, that he's identifying in different historical settings before his own time. And I think offering to us today as a, a way of looking at the kind of political and social struggles that we continue to experience uh, and that we need redemption in and from. Much like justice, Mike, I think when you take a look at the theological landscape um, throughout church history, uh, from Augustine onwards, really, everybody wants to be on Augustine's side. Who doesn't love Augustine? And Augustine, and particularly this text, City of God, has been co-opted, perhaps used in particular ways throughout church history, and even in our own day. As I'm rereading the City of God, I'm just kind of struck how at how uh, how much he alludes sort of the, the current theological debates, perhaps between particular camps within political theology, even reform political theology. Can you speak to the ways in which perhaps Augustine in specific examples, alludes these sort of debates and how he might be co-opted for our own purposes that might be alien to his own concerns? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of different ways. Uh, there are books offering typologies of different political Augustinianisms claiming to be rooted here. You know, they range from those who would suggest that somehow Augustine is trying to to underwrite and justify just a godless secularism for this age, as if somehow uh, the fact that the city of God is its own distinct project means that we are sort of free and we've got a blank check to kind of do what we wish in this earthly life because it doesn't matter, sort of govern like hell, you might say, because it doesn't eventually wind up in heaven. And that's, of course, a, a really mangled view of what he's got going. On the other hand, um, you know, there, there are all sorts of pretty, I think we might say, arrogant notions of the kind of political accomplishment that we ought to expect. And here Augustine uh, is being really taken as an argument for instituting some, some pretty robust the theocratic policy in different places. And, uh, Again, that's, that's far from what he's after. Uh, while he's interested in instituting peace, justice, and love in all sorts of ways and seeing the kingdoms of our Lord, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, Augustine at the same time really wants to, to emphasize and underline the intractability of political struggle and frustration, this side of the second coming of Christ, that uh, we will not and we cannot perfect or bring to completion this political project, and that those who think they will wind up exercising that libido dominandi, the, the lust to dominate and control others in a way that harms them and themselves. That's, that's to become something other than human and creaturely. And so those are two, you might say, extreme misreadings. In the middle, and there, there's still vivid debates and debates that in at least some iterations really do find their roots in portions of the text uh, that are suggestive in different ways. But Augustine, he really does want to emphasize that uh, we need something more than a political project. We need a, a city from on high. 
And so the work begins with him declaring the glories of the city of God. And he's taking the language of Zion from the Zion Psalms. Um, And we need that as a project that descends from on high and comes to bring hope and redemption to us here. Along with that, we've got to emphasize the intractability of political struggle in a fallen world that we can't get beyond that. Um, It takes different forms. He argues Babylon is sort of the tragic comedy of the old covenant people of God, and Rome is kind of the tragic version, uh, the parody, you might say, of the new covenant people of God. Um, And I think he would say similar things, whether he were talking about American or Chinese political, you know, empires of our day and others throughout the ages since his time, um, that in different ways we we exercise power uh, in ways that are like unto, but but also parody of the peaceful city of God. Um, And he argues then finally that, that we need as Christians, our loves to be reordered by God. We need grace. We need to be transformed. And that transformation will really lead to love and virtue. And so we actually can make productive contribution. We can't ultimately bring eschatological Sabbath and peace. That's for God. But we can really love neighbor. We can really uh, act justly. We can really pursue peace. Uh, And so he is not somehow someone who suggests that you just let go and let God, politically speaking. Uh, He really does call for the pursuit of justice and of peace because he calls for the pursuit of reordered love. That's such a profound idea that you just mentioned, the idea of the city of man being a parody of the city of God and that it's, it's the derived city. It's not the origin city that the, that the city of God comes out of or something, which I think so often for Christians, we, we tend to forget that, that what we're dealing with here is derived from and is in response to and reaction against the city of God, not the other way around, you know, and that's really, I mean, that's just such a such a profound kind of you know shift in perspective on how to think about these things and how to engage with them. Yeah, and it's really contrary to a lot of contemporary political theory. I mean, you can look at books like Francis Fukuyama's massive work on political order and decay, and sort of a standard argument that humans over the long haul, we we gradually learn what works in terms of ordering ourselves. And it's a form of social evolution uh, where we adapt and we figure out ways not to kill each other. And we figure out ways to more efficiently and productively do life. And that involves kind of the gradual lesson of uh, political life. And instead, Augustine's vision that, that God actually grants us in nature and in innocence and ordered a bodied uh, political life from which we have fallen. And it may be an immature political life to take up Irenaeus's language, uh, one that would need to develop and grow into a full flowering of what we may call adult character, but it's good and it's got real design and it's, it's got a theological definition. So Augustine really does uh, want to argue at one and the same time, both that 
even the Greeks and Romans can observe Christian contribution to their own society just on empirical grounds. And at the same time, Christians, we have a, a distinct rationality for understanding why uh, citizenship and neighborliness have a real character and definition. And there are certain ways that you treat an image bearer. There are certain ways that you show love to a neighbor. There are certain ways that you restrain and regulate yourself. And that those are ultimately not just the discovery of, of long iterations and failings and eventual growth uh, in sort of iterating again and again and, and evolving, but those are a gift of God. Um, and that provides real definition and thus real challenge. And yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's, uh, and Fukuyama is a good example of that because he has a clear eschatology that it's different. And he would say is religiously informed, you know, but it's, it's, it's different. Now, now moving on beyond him. Now, what I'm about to say is not reflecting on Fukuyama so much, yeah. but the idea too, that we've all experienced where you see Christian ideas, or at least we could say sort of theistically formed ideas showing up in the world around us, and yet having used the language of parody, that kind of parody, right? That that's sort of, um, it's not, you're kind of like, that's kind of right, but that's not, I don't think that's what was meant in scripture when that was said, you know, kind of thing, like honoring uh, you know, honoring those around us with dignity, and yet the way in which that's finding application in the world around us, realizing, well, that's not really what the image of God is calling us to. There's a kind of a parody of the of that idea showing up. That's a that's such a helpful paradigm. And I think what what has been really useful as well, Mike, as you've been talking about these different ways in which Christians have tried to engage the world, according to Augustine, is that he he really unlinks all of our political efforts from the kingdom of heaven, from the city of God. And yet, even as he unlinks all of our political efforts, all these earthly consequences to the city of God, he still calls us to become fruitful citizens of the city of man. There's, these are just two virtues that oftentimes don't go together. You either say the city of man, the earth is really not the city of God. And so you're kind of detached from it. You don't care about it, or you're fully involved and you just kind of naturalize um, the eschaton. So, these two things that normally don't go together go together here in Augustine and perhaps so much of our political and reform theological debates on these matters are stuck on either end sometimes kind of just naturalizing eschatology on the one hand or so distinguishing the kingdom of God and the eschaton from the city of man that we simply become indifferent to it um, so we are discussing Augustine for this whole year and we also have a conference uh, the Paideia Theological Conference in the month of April of 2022. Could you say more about that? We're going to be discussing further on Augustine, I believe. Yeah, we're going to have a, a, a day conference on April 29th. It'll be here in Orlando. Those who are either in groups or who put their email on our website to get updates, they'll, they'll have info there. They'll see it on social media. We're going to have a range of speakers um, and addressing a whole array of aspects of Augustine's theology more broadly and his writing in the city of God specifically. And uh, many of the folks there will be folks who've journeyed through the city of God patiently and persistently all year long. And if folks can't make it to Orlando in late April, uh, we'll make stuff available after the fact so that they can catch up as we've done with previous conferences. 
But the hope is that that's a, an opportunity to have some more detailed conversation and to see people benefit from conversations that have happened, you know, in DC or in Chattanooga or in Jakarta, and to be able to overhear some of the kinds of discussions uh, that won't have happened in every setting in the same way, but can inform and uh, equip each of us. And uh, as with, with all that we're doing, one of the goals is not just to focus on classic ideas or even classic texts, but to do so with one another in ways that, that really shape us to simultaneously critical and charitable interaction that can truly be productive. And I think Augustine, the City of God, models that in the way in which uh, he treats interlocutors with seriousness, with patience, uh, with real charity. Uh, and yet at the same time, that makes his critical judgments all the more powerful. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to not just talk about how he does that, but ways in which we might practice that today. His engagement of non-Christian ideas, as well as his engagement of non-Christian persons. And I, I think what we're discovering in different groups as we interact with him and as we sort of turn the mirror back on ourselves is that often we are more formed in many subtle ways by the city of man than we'd like to admit. And uh, as we hear about the city of God, I think we'll realize how much we need to be committed to the ongoing call of repentance and of formation. And that's why this is hopefully just a, a really intense launching pad or re-engagement for folks who are going to be committed to the long haul. And hopefully they'll make some dear friends, they'll make some productive connections, and they'll be readied and, and further equipped for ongoing theological discipleship in years to come. Yeah, I can't highly recommend enough uh, sitting down with engaged, committed fellow Christians and reading through these early church fathers and just hearing these voices. As you said, it's a cross-cultural experience, but it also is challenging to the group in the way that we discuss and apply it and understand it today. It's such a great a great way to be formed, to be theologically formed, um, whether or not you're in seminary. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mike, for this conversation. Listen, uh, if you've enjoyed listening to this conversation, our dear listeners, and you'd like to know how to engage more with Mike Allen's writing and output, um, you'll never get to the bottom of it. It might be more intimidating than reading The City of God because of how prolific he is as an author. Um, some recent works that I draw your attention to would be his commentary on Ephesians in the Brazos Theological Commentary Series, an excellent theological interpretation. So this is a commentary written by a systematician on the book of Ephesians, and it's it's a phenomenal resource. His work on sanctification and the new studies in dogmatics has been particularly helpful for me. But Mike, tell us a little bit about what you've got coming up. I know you've got two important works coming up in 2022. So yeah. help us out. Sure. So two collections of essays will be coming out in January 22. Both, even combined, they're a lot shorter than City of God, so I can at <laughs> least say that I've got brevity on my side there. Um, one's titled The Fear of the Lord, Essays in Theological Methodology, and there there's going to be essays on the idea of revelation, on the practice of theological interpretation of scripture, 
on the discipline of theological retrieval, on the idea of theology as an ascetical uh, enterprise, an intellectually ascetical or repentant exercise. And then lastly, the idea of, of doing theology in a scholastic rigor or manner. So a number of methodological areas I've, I've tried to write on and explore in recent years will, will be there in the fear of the Lord. Uh, and then there's a second set of essays titled The Knowledge of God, Essays on God, Christ, and Church. And they're looking at some major uh, loci or topics in systematic theology. Uh, I really try to explore how that method get, gets put to work. And so the, the first several essays are on the triune God, looking at Exodus 3 and a couple of them, or exploring particular attributes like God's fullness, or exploring what it means to think in a Trinitarian manner about all sorts of things. Um, then there's several essays on Christology, uh, relating Christ to our understanding of the human or anthropology, or to our understanding of covenant or engaging some, some feisty debates in the contemporary scene, you might say, about the person and work of Christ. And then lastly, there's several essays on ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church, trying to really give a, a theological account of the church that's doing more than just empirical work, but really starting with basic Christian doctrines and seeing how those give us eyes to see what the church actually is, what the church is meant for, and why the church experiences both joy and sorrow and uh, salvation and struggle all at once, uh, hopefully appreciating that in a, a distinctly scriptural and theological way. So I'm, I'm excited for the, both of those to, to be off my desk and be done and eager for them to be available for readers here in just the next few weeks. Yeah, they sound best. So, so they'll they'll come out January twenty two. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, and they're both published by TNT Clark. Okay, great. So you can pre-order those for your favorite theologian for Christmas and give them a nice card under the tree, telling them of the theological riches to come. Mike, this is perhaps just uh, my own personal curiosity. You, you've written so much on so many different topics there. I mean, in those two collections of essays, you are covering all the way from ecclesiology to prolegomena, doctrine of revelation, doctrine of Christ, mm -hmm. and so on. And of course, in your own PhD thesis, you wrote on the Christ faith. Mm -hmm. You've also recently written on um, a commentary on the book of Ephesians, things like that. And also the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of justification. How would you describe sort of how all of these works are connected? If you were trying to trace out particular theological interests that mark out all of these works and all these broad array of theological topics, how would you characterize it? Right. Yeah, the deepest continuity is Microsoft Word. Um, but, but secondarily, I would say that, you know, I have in the, I guess, 15 plus years, I've been a writer, theologically speaking, I've tried to work at two things at the same time, both methodological matters and some material questions. And in both cases, there are different aspects of that that have been important, whether it's how you interpret scripture or how you retrieve the past or how you relate theology to spirituality and asceticism or how you think about modern theology and its relationship to scholastic method. Um, those would be a range of methodological questions. 
Uh, at the same time, I've, I've ranged over a number of material topics, Christology, justification, sanctification, glorification, Trinity, most recently. And uh, what I found is that it's necessary to keep thinking about both because the, the method is shaped by the matter and the matter is perceived at least in large part uh, in ways that are defined by the method. And so there's a necessary interplay. And uh, I've, I've just thankfully had opportunity to continue exploring that as I, I hopefully process and perceive more on each side and try and add nuance and further resources to, to get a more holistic and hopefully a, a more accurate account of what it means to practice theology on the one hand and what you might want to proclaim theologically about certain topics on the other. And sometimes that's involved having to say that I made a false start and needed to re-say something and think back otherwise. Um, at other times, it's it's been a matter of, of seeing that by looking at things from other angles and through other topics, you can say more than you originally thought. And uh, I found both of those productive personally, as well as as a teacher who hopefully can, can help draw students in uh, to the just the happy task of of contemplating and studying and trying to give witness as you can and, and trying to repent further ahead um, bit by bit. And so that, that's been something of the interplay that, that truthfully marks those two volumes as sort of uh, representative examples of those two ongoing sorts of uh, intellectual commitments. After the upheaval of the last 150 years, exegetically or hermeneutically, it's it's important probably for all of us to sit back and revisit method and epistemology and and, and what it is exactly that we are doing when we're doing uh, and when we're formulating uh, theological mm. propositions and ideas. Thank you so much, Mike, for being with us this week. It's always a pleasure, guys. Thanks. Uh, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please do come and check us out at rts.edu. And in particular, if you're in, Washington, in the Washington campus, check us out at rts.edu forward slash Washington. For everybody who's listening, don't forget to tell your friends about the faculty podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and your, fam and your favorite uh, clearinghouse for podcasts. If you have any questions for the faculty podcast, check out our episode notes where you can find the means to do that. Our apologies to Erwin Ince, who was the first of our guests to come on twice. So, Mike, you're in a uh, you're in a really esteemed class now uh, by being our one of our repeat offenders mm -hmm. here at the faculty podcast. But thanks for this conversation, brothers. It's been great to have it with you. Look forward to seeing you again next week. Until then, take care. Thank you.